All right. First Samuel 24, uh, you can find it. If you haven't found it yet, I'm going to start reading, and I'll cue you in on what verses we're at. But we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines. It was told to him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Verse 3, So it came to the sheepfold by the road, and there was a cave. Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. David's on the run. Saul's chasing him with 3,000 men. Saul stops for a bathroom break in the cave. This is also the cave, so happens to be that David and his men are all residing in, okay? Verse 4. Then the men said, or the men of David said to David, hey, David, this is the day which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hands that you might do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, now it happened afterwards that David's heart troubled him because he had cut off Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Verse 7, so David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to reside against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went his way. David's presented with an opportunity to kill Saul, the guy who's been chasing him for like just such a like long amount of time. He's been on the run. He gets in the cave with Saul. Saul's like doing his business in the corner. David totally has him. He's vulnerable. He could just go up and stab him. Instead, David slices off a tiny corner of Saul's robe. And even with that, he feels bad. He says to his friends, I can't kill God's anointed. I can't kill the king. I can't do it. And he restrains his friends. He keeps them from doing anything to Saul. Verse 8, David also arose afterwards, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stopped with his face to the earth and bowed down low. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Indeed, David seeks you harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, Saul, but my eyes spared you and said, I will not stretch out my hand against the king, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, verse 11, my father, see, Saul was David's father-in-law. He says, moreover, my father, see, the corner of your robe is in my hand for that if I cut off the corner of robe and did not kill you, know and see there is no evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it? Verse 12, let the Lord judge between you and me, Saul, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. He says, Saul, the rumors that I'm trying to kill you, those are all false. I love you, man. You're my father-in-law, but you're the one who's trying to kill me. This is friendly fire. Do you guys know what friendly fire means? Anybody raise your hand, you video gamers, and you guys know what that means? The term friendly fire is when you're on the same team with somebody, but you're taking shots at them. Recently, there was uh, four U.S. Army soldiers who were killed in Afghanistan, but it wasn't from Afghani troops. It was from friendly fire. There was a U.S. plane that dropped a bomb, and they miscalculated their target, and they ended up killing four of their own men. That's what's called friendly fire. It's when you're shooting at somebody that you really shouldn't be shooting at. So David says, or Saul, this is friendly fire. We're on the same team. We both follow God. Let the Lord judge us if we're at fault, but I'm not going to harm you, Saul. And finishing up the chapter, verse 16. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He just starts crying like a baby. Verse 17. Then he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown me this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivers me into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let his enemy get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you, David, with good for what you have done for me this day. And now, indeed, know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand, David. Therefore, swear to me now, you will not cut off my descendants after me, and you will not destroy my name from my father's house. 
So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Okay. This chapter is awesome. I think we can learn a lot from what David does. I want to ask you guys, has anyone ever done anything mean to you? Raise your hand. Has anyone ever done anything mean to you where you're just like, that was mean? That was really mean? Someone did something mean to me the other night. In fact, I'm married to this person. And, and we were hanging out, trying to sleep, and she thought it would be hilarious to start playing old 90s Destiny's Child music. I didn't appreciate that. Like, I don't care about Beyonce, but she was just playing it over and over again and laughing at me as I, I literally, remember I was like putting the pillow over my head trying to like keep the sound out. It was really bad. I had something else. Someone in this room did something mean to me. You want to know what it was? Okay. I was having a really bad day, really bad. Uh, I was running a junior high beach night, and I'm late to it. My wife's car had broken down, and I'm at the car repair shop, and the guy told me it was only going to cost 100 bucks. I'm like, okay, I can afford that. Well, he hands me the bill, and I'm already running late, and I look at the bill, $900. And I just was like, my brain went, like, $900. Where am I going to get $900? And I'm looking at it. All of a sudden, my phone goes, and I'm like, what the? I pull out my phone, and it's like, do you still have those baby chihuahuas? And I was like, what? I literally got about 100 texts saying, can I please buy your baby chihuahuas? Please sell me your baby chihuahuas. How dare you sell baby chihuahuas? They're babies. What are you thinking? Literally just text after text. People are calling me. I'm standing at the auto repair shop. The guy is trying to tell me about how I owe him 900 bucks. I'm reading these texts. My, literally, I wanted to kick a goat. My first response was Jamie Urbina. Why would you do this to me? Because he's a prankster, and he targets me, like, mercilessly. He's done things to me, terrible things. And I, I just, I called him. I was like, Jamie, how could you? And he's like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. So then I, next I thought, Scott. And I was like, Scott, you dirtbag. How could you? And Scott's just like, what? I don't even know. And, and when Scott says, like, I don't know what you're talking about, he seems really guilty. Like, I don't know what it is, but he just, I, he, when he denied it, like, I felt like it really was him. Well, I found out it was one of our two worship leaders today. I'll let you figure out who. It was Rachel. <laughs> so mean. It's okay. We've, it's, I've forgiven her. And uh, I actually started having fun with it because people started texting me about the chihuahuas. And they're like, because I was like, okay, if I have lemons, I'm going to make some lemonade. At least I'm going to enjoy this. So people were texting me and they're like, how big are those baby chihuahuas? And I was like, how big do you want them to be? Like just texting them weird stuff. Like this one lady was like, can can you please give me a female baby? I would just love a female baby. And I was like, I'm sorry, but my wife went through a lot of effort to give birth to that child, and you can't have her. So uh, just lots of fun stuff. So, um, but that's not that mean. I mean, the things that have been done to me, the things that have been done to you, some of you people have had way worse things, but nothing is as mean as what Saul is doing to David, chasing him around the countryside, trying to kill him, trying to murder him. It is a bad situation. None of us have had it like David. He's been gossiped about, betrayed, torn away from his wife and his best friend, Prince Jonathan. He's been under the attack of Saul to the point of attempted murder where Saul is just chucking spears at him. And he's been chased with a giant army. Have you ever been chased by an army of 3,000 people? It's terrible. It's terrible. Now, I want to ask you guys a question. Is anyone here bold enough to admit that they have what you would call enemies? Does anyone here have enemies? Yeah, okay, a few people with some enemies, okay? I think some of you guys might have people in your life you consider an enemy or an antagonist in your life, and maybe you just don't want to raise your hand because they're in this room, maybe. I don't know. Um, Here's the first thing we need to realize, though, in the situation. And hold on. My slides are out of order. No, they're not. Okay, the first thing I want to tell you guys about is, one, God will deal with the wicked. Hashtag not my job. Has anyone ever tried to do your job? And it's really frustrating. Whether you're on a sports team or student body council leader or something, you've been given a responsibility and someone comes over and tries to do it. Has anyone ever been frustrated by that? Someone else trying to do what you're supposed to do, maybe a sibling. Uh, for, for me, it's when I go to family camp, I was playing chess with my wife and we we're just enjoying this chess game. And this kid comes up and he's this little greasy haired kid comes up and he's like, hey, you should move that piece there and that piece there. And oh, check it. I'm like, just let me play my chess game. What's wrong with you? It's so annoying when someone tries to do what you feel like is your thing to do. Well, my question is, why do we try to do God's job of judging the wicked? 
whether it be trying to punish someone for something bad they did, or in our own hearts, looking at someone who's done something wrong and judging them. Here's what Proverbs 11, verse 21 says. Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. Now we can hear that and be like, yes, awesome. I will go free because I am so righteous. But here's the way we need to think about it. It's not that, oh, the criminals will be punished, but the the good people go free. It's no, the criminals will be punished, but the criminals who are fortunate enough to have been pardoned, they will go free. We need to look at ourselves as we are sinners. Like, we're not like, oh, yeah, I was born into a Christian family, so righteous. We need to be like, I'm a sinner. Like, that little white lie I told yesterday is enough to separate me from God. We don't look at other people and judge them. Instead, we understand the grace that we've been given. We've all sinned enough for hell. And judging other believers, which is something I think we all do, we look at other people who are believers and we judge them. I can't believe they wore that. I can't believe they posted that picture. I can't believe they said that. How could they say that? They're supposed to be a Christian. And we look at people and we judge them in our own hearts and it's not right. Now, David had every right to judge Saul, but he looks at him and he realizes this is God's anointed. This is somebody that God chose to be king. How can I be the judge of him? Only God can judge him. Now, here's the thing. Christians, we should want a deeper walk with God. But maturity, I mean, it's impossible to be fully mature. It's, it's a process. It's impossible for us to reach perfection and maturity. We're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to react badly to circumstances. But as time goes on, as you grow with the Lord, you are going to sin less and less in the areas you mess up in. But we all, we all love that goosebump feeling we get at camp where we just feel like we're so close with God. It's a spiritual high. But it's not at those times that we actually do grow closer with the Lord. Do you want to know how? It's, it's through trials, I think. It's through suffering. It's through going through things that are hard and challenging and difficult. And we might say, oh, that hurts God. Why are you doing this to me? But the truth is, through trials and difficulties, God is sanding us into a jewel like a fine diamond. The problem is most of us run from our trials because we don't want there to be any pain involved. But here's the thing. This is a crazy thing that I've realized. If we open up our arms to a trial, something hard in your life you don't want to happen, if you open up your arms to it and like embrace it with a big hug and you're like, this is my trial, this is my difficulty, I accept it, I embrace it, it's going to not become a trial anymore, it's going to become a blessing to you. If you love your trial, it's not a trial anymore. Now, you can say, thank you, Jesus. You can say, thank you, Lord. This trial, this is where you have me. I know this is where you want me. I know that there's no place I'd rather be than with you. And where you have me to be is in this trial. A lot of times, that's not where we want to be. Think of the disciples in the boat, and they're in that storm. And they're like, we want to get out of this storm. We want to get out of this boat. We want to do whatever we can to get away. But it was where Jesus was. The trial was where Jesus was. A lot of times, the struggles that we're going through, that's where Jesus wants us to be because that is where he knows he can teach us to rely on him the most. And that kind of attitude, it removes the trouble from the trial, and it makes us be able to have victory over our trial. And here's the same thing, because trials, a lot of times, take the form of people in our lives. You look at a person, maybe it's your ex-best friend who is no longer your best friend. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your sibling. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's just someone at school who makes you feel miserable. And you look at that person as, this is a trial. I label them as a trial. I mean, Saul absolutely would have been labeled a trial in David's life. Our natural response is to stay away from the trial and to run from the trial and run from the person until God answers our prayers. We'll watch that person from a distance and we'll pray, Lord, change them, change that person, make them different. Or even, Lord, smite them, strike them with holy thunder because they're terrible, terrible people. We'll, We'll pray these things against, I mean, I've done it. There's been people, there's this one kid named Michael when I was a young boy who just drove me crazy in elementary school and junior high. And I prayed all the time, like, God, just send him away to a different school. Lord, get rid of him, because he made me cry. He, he said things that hurt my feelings. It was really, really hard. But here's the thing. Instead of us looking at people and praying, Lord, change them, 
When we're going through a trial, we should instead be going, Lord, change me. Lord, make me to be the person I need to be to love that person. That person I think of as a trial, don't, don't worry about them. Like, I know you're going to deal with them. I know you're going to deal with that person. But for me, I want you to work on my heart to make me the kind of person who can love them, who can reach out to them, who can show them unconditional love. When you pray and you mean it, the person in your life who you think of as a trial, they stop becoming a trial to you, and they become a tool where God can teach you. Um, you guys know Ernest Hemingway? Anybody? Moby Dick, right? The white whale. He's like super manly, wrote this awesome quote, courage is grace under pressure. I think that is so awesome. David had the power to make his problem disappear. The sword was in his hand. Saul's in the corner going to the bathroom, completely focused on his own business. David has the spear ready to just strike him down. He had the power to take care of his own problem. He had the power to remove the problem and make it disappear. But here's the thing. When we think we have the power to make our problems disappear, what we really have is only the power to make our problems much worse. David taking the life of the current king of Israel would have caused not only so many problems for him, he would have, for one, killed his wife's father. Think about the marriage problems that would have come from that. He would have not only politically killed the king, think about all the backfire that would have come on him, but most important to David was, this is God's anointed. And if I kill the one that God has chosen, then what will happen to me? What we need to realize sometimes is the people in our life who are trials are God's anointed people that he has anointed to be in your life. What I mean by that is he's chosen them to be in your life. He's like, this person who totally rubs you the wrong way and messes up your life, I mean, I, I have put them there. I have planted them there to teach you about patience. I planted them there to teach you about following me. I planted them there to teach you about love. Will you step up to the challenge? Because David not only had the power to remove his problem, but more importantly, he had the courage to give his problem to the one who could handle his problem, which is God. Courage is grace under pressure. And it's easy to have grace when things are good, but God calls us to have courage. It's easy to have grace when things are good, but when things are bad, God calls us to have courage to stand against the enemy and have grace under pressure. The best way to have courage in these matters is value God's will above our own. And there we go. That brings us to this. Not my will, but your will be done. It's what Jesus said in the garden. Think about it. Jesus is our ultimate example. Our ultimate example of saying, I care more about God's will than I do care about my own will. In Luke twenty two forty two, Jesus is in the garden. He's sweating great drops of blood because he knows he's about to be executed. And he says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is our ultimate example. No matter, I mean, when my trials come, when my hard times come, all I want is for my will, which is that I would get out of this problem, my life would get back on track, I would not have to deal with this, and I would be able just to live my life in peace. But Jesus gives us such a great example of saying, God, I know there's a reason for this trial. I know there's a reason for this suffering. So the point is respecting God's will, putting God's will first. And in this world that you live in, there are so many ways to put our own will for first. Forced. I can't talk. Ah, okay. So there's a lot of ways to put our own wills first. For one, those of you guys, any of you guys have a job yet? Anyone working? Okay. So you know what's really easy to put our own will first is you see another employee who's doing a really, really bad job, and you want to move up. You want to ascend to a higher position at your job. So you strategically tell your boss about the shortcomings of your fellow employee to move them down and put you in a position where you can move up. It happens all the time. But wouldn't God's will for you be not to rat on somebody else so that you can move up, but to trust God enough that you're gonna get a promotion in whatever job you're doing? Think about school. 
the school social order. Some of you guys are on student body councils and ASBs and sports teams. It's so easy to bad talk someone else. They're not really pulling their weight. They're not really doing a good job. They're they're not really capable. And you talk to your teacher or, for some of you guys, choir director or whoever. And it's so easy to badmouth somebody else in order to push someone down to elevate yourself. And it happens all the time. But God's will for our life, I think, would be to love each other and be understanding and compassionate enough that we would allow, if if we're going to move up, it's going to be because God is moving us up, not because we're pushing someone else back down. We need to put our trust in him. For me, one of my biggest uh, struggles with this was when I was dating my current wife now, Brooklyn. Um, Or no, I was not dating her. That's the point. Uh, I was in love with her, madly in love with her. We were in England, Bible college. And oh my goodness, she was the most beautiful creature I'd ever seen. She was so kind and sweet and lovely. When she walked, her hair blew in the breeze and it was just fantastic. And I, I used to stare at her in class. She'd sit on the couch and I'd just be like, Hmm. And she was just so cute and so amazing. She was my best friend. And I remember just so many times walking around beautiful England. She was my best friend. We went everywhere. And we'd just be walking around. And I would just, in my heart, would be like, must hold her hand. Must tell her that I love her. Must, like, initiate dating relationship after, like, three weeks. Just, I mean, some of you guys know the feeling. I saw guys at Bible college, literally after two weeks, they were in a dating relationship. I was like, obviously, this is the woman I'm going to marry. Obviously, so I I must initiate. And God was like, just be patient. Just wait. Just don't ruin what I've planned out for you. Be patient. Don't jump into something too fast and too soon. Are we willing to do that? I think a lot of us are control freaks. I'm a control freak. It reminds me of a story of a kid named Mikey. Mikey's in the grocery store, and he's a little boy, and his mom is pushing the grocery cart around, and Mikey wants to push the grocery cart because every little kid, who wanted to push the grocery cart? Did you want to drive that grocery cart? Because it had wheels, and you could push it, and you can get it gliding, and you could jump up on that little bar, and you could just coast. It was amazing. That's what Mikey wanted, and he talked to his mom. Mom, can I drive the cart? No, no, no. Please, mom, let me drive the cart. No, maybe one day when you're older. What? And, and he's, he's going around the grocery store, and finally one day, his mom's like, you can drive the cart. It's the day. The day has arrived. And he's like, yes, finally. I thought I was going to get my driver's license before I was able to drive the grocery cart. So, so he grabs that bar, and he starts scooting and picking up speed, and he's like, I'm driving the cart. All of a sudden, his mom comes around the side, and she puts her hand on the side of the cart, and she starts guiding the direction. Even though he's the one pushing the momentum, mom's still steering, and Mikey's so, so bummed. And you would be too. You'd be like, I thought my mom trusted me. I thought she was going to let me. Like, I I hate when someone tells me I'm going to be able to control something, and then I find out they're lying, and I don't really have any control. But really, isn't that what we do to God? We tell him, Lord, I give you my all. I give you my heart. Lord, take control. But then we're putting our hand on the side, and we're kind of guiding the ship. We're like, okay, God, you you can push, but we're That's what I think we do. And I think that's what David could have done. I mean, it's so hard to trust God. It's so hard for David to say, Saul wants to kill me. He's chased me away from my wife, away from my best friend. I've been on the run for years. And this, I mean, this is just not the way life is supposed to be lived. I want to take matters into my own hands and take care of this problem. But David says, you know what, Lord? Not my will, but your will be done. And that's what we need to remember. We need to realize something important, I think, that goes into this. It becomes easier to, when you're dealing with people, it becomes much easier to trust the Lord if you understand something. And that is, the enemy is not who you think the enemy is. Think about this. There was an army that was advancing on a town, a small village, and they're just going to, like, take out this other army. It was two armies from different countries that had ended up in a city that was not their own. Neither army belonged to that city. They just ended up at that city, and they're fighting at it. So the one army on the left side, they know that that army is, they're in that village. They've taken it over. So they're going to go and just destroy the other army. And they show up, and they march down to that city. Out in the field comes a bunch of guys holding guns in their hands. And they think, oh, it's the enemy's army. We got to attack them. So they just rush, and they just open fire. And as they're shooting these guys, they're like, these guys don't seem like soldiers. 
They're not really fighting back. They're just holding these guns. Like, why are they going down so easy? And they take out all those guys. Well, as they show up, they're looking at all these dead bodies on the ground. All of a sudden, out of nowhere is an ambush. It's the army. What happened was the army over here that was in the town, they got a bunch of townspeople, farmers, merchants, blacksmiths, and they held them at gunpoint and said, you're gonna, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take these guns. There's no ammo in them. You're going to go stand out in the field or we'll shoot you. We're not going to tell you why. So what happened was the army that came over here thinking they were going to fight the enemy, they shot a bunch of civilians. They took out a bunch of innocent people thinking they were fighting the enemy. And this makes me think what we do. Because what we do is we attack other people. We look at other people as the enemy. We label people as the enemy. But here's what the Bible says about that. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood people. We are fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly world places. The enemy is not who you think it is. Here's the thing. These are a couple examples I think of. One, as Christians, we can look at other Christians who cause us pain, who cause us harm, and we can think, they're the enemy. They're my enemy. They're causing me all, this pro- all these problems, all this grief. We can look at, for example, it's in the news a lot right now, We can look at someone who's a Muslim terrorist, right? And we can look at them, and we can say, that is my enemy. That is my enemy. They are bad. They are terrible. They are wicked. You know what? That's true, but so am I, and so are you. And the reality of it all is people are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. What I mean by that is they are captured. They're in captivity. They are so just wrapped up with sin and with darkness in their life. But you look at someone who's a sinner, and the Bible never called you to look at that person and say, that is my enemy. The Bible calls us to have compassion. The Bible calls us to look on the people who do us harm and to show them love and mercy. Look at what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 3 through 48. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The enemy is not who you think it is. Can you imagine if you got saved from a burning building, a a building that's just going down in flames and you're up on the top window and you're screaming and you're crying out for help and a fireman comes up and rescues you, and you get down out of that burning building, and you and your friends get rescued, and then you look up at the burning building, and you see more people burning, and instead of you going, we need to save them, like, can I help, can I volunteer, can I raise a ladder, can I throw a bucket of water, instead you go, sad, it's just terrible, it's their own fault for staying in that building, they just, they won't decide to get out, sad, sad, can you imagine like being judgmental, but like it's their own fault for being up there. But isn't that what we do, especially us born in Christian households? Because for you, you don't remember getting pulled out of that burning building. For you, you were just, you were a child. You were an infant baby that got led out of the building. You have no memory of it. You were born into a Christian family. The decision was basically made for you. You at some point came to your own faith in Christ, maybe in junior high, children's ministry, maybe in high school. But for you, you don't have a story of, I was doing drugs, I was on the street, I was just in a public school, just completely living for myself, completely doing my own thing, and then Jesus found me and saved me. For those of us who were born getting pulled out of that burning building with no memory, it's so easy for us to look at the burning building and judge the people burning in it. But God calls us to look at them with compassion. One of the biggest examples I see of this is the way we treat as Christians, and I'm just making a blanket statement. If you don't feel this way or if you feel like you don't act this way, that's totally fine. I'm just making a blanket statement about the majority of the church. The way we treat the homosexual community, to me, is just, it's, it's so sad. 
because we see, I, I remember uh, doing a, a class and, and teaching a class, and, and I brought up homosexuality. This is with a bunch of junior high kids. It was at uh, the school here, and I brought up junior, or I brought, I brought up uh, homosexual kids, and um, there was a lot of kids who were really young, sixth graders, like they, you know, they probably know better now, but at sixth grade, there was just this, like, a few of them who were like, ew, those people are sick, they're disgusting, I hate them, ew, and I just remember, like, my heart broke, and I sat down, and I talked with the classes, and I remember um, some of you guys were in that class, you guys were eighth graders at this time, but I sat you down, and I was like, all right, let's talk about homosexuals, what do you guys think, uh, what do you guys think about them, what's in your heart, like, what, what's your reaction, and half of the class was like, that's sick, that's wrong, that's bad. And the other half was like, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. There's, it's fine. That's, it's, it's normal. It's natural. And I was just like, man, it needs to be somewhere in between. We need to be able to look at sin and be like, sin is wrong. Sin is bad. It is just as bad for someone to be in a homosexual relationship as it is for someone to be in a straight relationship, but they're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, that's the same level. It's so funny to me. I, I see people uh, down in the Bible Belt in Oklahoma. I, I talk to people, and, uh, you know, they're, they're so just upset about homosexual people, but then, like, everyone in their family is, like, just, like, I, I just, I see people. Like, I went to a church there, and, and I, I see this happening. Here's the crazy thing to me. A homosexual person is someone who needs God's love, just like I need God's love. It's someone who needs grace. It's someone who needs forgiveness. It's someone who needs to turn from their sin, just like I need to turn from my sin, just like you need to turn from your sin. But I just, I just think if we as a church, as a people, spent half as much time praying for homosexual people and other people we would think of as sinners as we do talking negatively about them to each other, posting on social media things that we don't like about them. Think about how much we do with that. Go on Facebook and just see how much is posted whenever this stuff comes up in the news. Just people posting just anti-gay stuff all the time. If you're a gay person, are you looking at that thinking, man, Christians are so loving, they love me. I should turn from my sin and accept Jesus. No, they're like, I hate Christians. And there's a reason for it. It's because of the way we treat them. I remember talking to Emma's dad, Eddie Hill, and he was telling me he used to go down to West Hollywood and he would witness to the homosexual people and he would not talk to them about their homosexuality. He would not come straight up to their face and be like, hey, you need to repent, you sinner. But he'd just tell them about Jesus. And eventually, it would get to the point where they'd ask questions and he'd be honest with them, but he was never in their face. I mean, I, I read a story about a pastor. He's a youth pastor. And this guy was a homosexual kid growing up in a Christian school, afraid to tell anybody about his orientation, afraid to tell anybody about his feelings, and just lying to everybody. And eventually when it came out, all the kids in his Christian school turned on him. They said, you terrible, how could you, you're a sinner, you need to, uh, and they just turned on him. And it just, for him, he like left the faith. He's like, I can't be a Christian anymore. And he went years, just years, junior high, high school, struggling with it, knowing in his heart the truth, knowing what the Bible says, knowing it's wrong, but just struggling because everyone was so hateful towards him. And it wasn't until he got to college that there was a Christian girl who reached out to him, decided to be his friend, and just loved him for who he was, just reached out to him. And it was through his relationship with this girl, just this friendship of her being just willing to tell him about the Bible, talk to him about Jesus, but in a way that was non-mean, a way that was just loving. It was through that relationship that now he is re he's reverted back to, I mean, he has a wife, he has kids, he's a youth pastor. I read this guy's story. It's super long. If anybody wants it, I'll find it and I'll send it to you. It's a really, really good read. But I just think the, the people in the world that we look at, the bad people, the sinners, the, the sinners, we're sinners. People are not the enemy, they're victims of the enemy. They're captives of the enemy. And the only way to fight in this war is with the weapon of love. That's the only thing we can use against the people who are the captives of the enemy. That's the only thing that breaks the chains and the cages that they're in. You see, David realizes that Saul is not the enemy. He says, Saul, I commit you to God. Like, you're not my enemy. You're my friend. Why? I don't know why you're trying to kill me, Saul, but you're under captivity of the enemy. You're not my enemy. The enemy is persecuting you. Saul back then, he was, he was basically not possessed by a demon, but he was tormented by a demon, the Bible tells us. Saul literally had a demonic spirit that was sitting on his shoulder telling him things to do, whispering lies into his ear like in a horror movie. It was crazy. And David realizes, Saul, 
you're under captivity of the enemy. I'm not going to be the one to kill you. God will be the one to deal with you. God deals with you. It's not my job. But Saul, the only person who can free you is God. Here's the thing, though. David is not perfect. We're looking at this story, and David takes the high road. He doesn't attack his enemy. He doesn't persecute his enemy. He gives his enemy to God. But you know what the crazy thing is? Here's what happens to David afterwards. In 1 Samuel 25, David is traveling with his men. He's gotten away from Saul. Saul says, I'm not going to try to kill you. So David's just on the road now. He sees a rich man named Nabal. And he says to his men, let's go over to Nabal, to this rich guy. He's throwing a big feast. And let's ask him if we can have some of his food. Because we're hungry. So the men go over and they say, hey, Nabal, we heard you're a rich guy. David's wandering around uh, with his men. We need some food. Can you give us some food? And what Nabal says, basically, I paraphrase here, uh, Nabal responds, who does David think he is? I ain't given any of my food to you wandering jerks. So what's David's response? A, that's so lame. Let's go find another place to eat. There's a Taco Bell down the road. B, that wasn't very nice. I'm going to go cry in the corner. Or C, everyone grab your sword because we're going to kill that guy. That's literally what the Bible says. David says, everyone girth your sword. (laughs) Like, that's his response. He's just the guy who's been trying to kill him for years. He lets that guy live, but then he asks some guy for food. He doesn't give it, and David's response is just, we're going to kill him. He will die. Here's here's an amazing quote from Batman, uh, The Dark Knight. Harvey Dent says, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that's spoken, of course, by Two-Face. Two-Face started out, who here has seen the movie? Dark Knight? Okay. Two-Face starts out as district attorney Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent. Can we trust him? Anybody? No? Okay. Okay, he knows. So Harvey Dent starts out as a district attorney. He's a lawyer, and he's all about keeping the peace and fighting the crime. But you know what happens? He starts out a hero, but another guy, a criminal, throws a vat of acid in his face that burns off half his face and causes him to have this crazy split personality disorder where he becomes two-faced, a man with half a normal face, half a disfigured face, who's obsessed with flipping coins, and he starts killing people and causing crimes. And as he's on his bed in his hospital, he says, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And I thought that was such a great quote that applies to David because David is in a situation where if we would have read the story of David where he kills Goliath and then he dies, we'd be like, David died a hero. He's so amazing. If we would have gotten to the point where David was sparing Saul and he got killed by Saul, we'd be like, oh my gosh, David spared Saul, but then he got killed. He's a hero. But then two seconds later, if David would have died after he killed all of Nabal's men and Nabal, we'd have been like, David was a villain. He was a bad dude. If we would have gotten to the point where David sleeps with another man's wife, Bathsheba, commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then kills her husband in cold blood, we would have been like, David is a terrible person. He died a villain. Here's my point. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how how good I think I am, there are days where I'm a hero, sure, because I did a good thing. There are days where I'm a villain because I'm a sinner. You're never going to have a perfect streak where you're always doing the right thing. At any moment, you could be a hero or a villain in other people's eyes because you're a sinner. You're going to mess up. You're going to talk back to your mom. You're going to disrespect your dad. You're going to fail in your class. You're going to mess up with your teacher. You're going to slip up and say something you don't mean. You're going to hurt somebody. You're going to cause somebody pain because you are a sinner. And it's only if we have utter dependence on Jesus Christ, who's the only hero, that we can live a pure life. Jesus is the only one who can forgive us for our many, many sins. And here's my question for you. My question for you is, are you ever living a two-faced Christianity? Because think about it. David's kind of two-faced here, just like two-faced Harvey Dent in the quote. In one minute, when David's dealing with the Lord's anointed, King Saul, he's like, I can't kill the Lord's anointed. I can't murder. Oh, I I can't do it. He's too holy. It's, the, it's King Saul. But then when he sees some random rich dude who he doesn't know, he's like, kill him. Kill everyone he knows. Burn his house down. Now think about it. Sometimes when we're at church around our church friends, we can be one-faced, you know. 
hey, God bless you. Maybe if there's a class that we really care about, we really know it'll go towards our future, we're really good with the teacher. You know, we're just like, oh, I'll do whatever you want. But then sometimes we're two-faced. We go to church, we're like, oh, Lord, bless the Lord. We go home to the people we see the most, to the people we know the most, and we're just dirtbags to our mom and dad and our brothers and sisters. Or what about if it's that class we really care about, but then there's another class where we don't like the teacher, we don't respect the teacher, we, don't, we think the class is a waste of time, and we just treat that teacher in that class like we don't give them the time of day. We're not going to do their work. We're going to read the cliff notes every two seconds. We're not going to do anything for that teacher. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes our Christianity can be a little bit two-faced. Here's the thing. God wants you to be the same everywhere. He wants the light in your life of Jesus Christ to shine no matter where you are. The Bible says, let no man think he stands lest he falls. That means don't be prideful and think, I am a strong, confident Christian because our confidence in ourself leads to failure, but it's only the confidence in Jesus Christ that can keep us going. Now, thankfully, in that story, David doesn't end up killing Nabal's man and Nabal himself because Nabal's wife runs out. And she's like, please, David, I know my husband is a jerk. I don't even like him. Literally, it's, I'm paraphrasing. That's what the Bible says. He's like, my husband is terrible, but please don't kill him for his own stupidity. Please, David. So David's like, okay, fine, I won't. And you know what happens? A couple weeks later, Nabal dies. God strikes him dead. And David still kind of has a wicked heart because he's like, yes, the Lord killed my enemy. So awesome. And then Nabal marries that guy, or David marries that guy's wife. He's like, all right, so rebound. And he Grabs her and marries her. David's weird. Um, anyway, here's my last point. And this is probably the most important one. The point is, those who receive grace must freely give grace. Who here has received grace? Yeah? Okay, I've received a lot of grace. A lot of grace. Grace. I've gotten what I don't deserve, eternal life, friendship with God. I'm considered a son of God. God is my heavenly father. I've inherited the riches of heaven. I don't have to go to hell for my sins. Jesus died and bled on a cross for me. I've received grace. You've received grace. And David understood the grace that had been given to him. David knew he was just a shepherd boy. He was just a cheese delivery kid. He didn't have anything special going for him. God saw him and gave him what he didn't deserve. He gave him the kingdom. He said, David, one day you'll be king. David didn't deserve that. God forgave David for his sins. God loved David. God spent time with David. God knit his heart together with David. A lot of you guys know what that feels like, especially coming down from the camp experience. That's where our hearts really, I feel, for some of you guys, the Lord jumpstarts our hearts and starts to knit our hearts back together with him. And then we come down the mountain and we start reading our Bibles more than we have before. Maybe some of you guys are in that awesome season where you're just reading and praying and your heart is knit together with God and you feel that connection. If you don't feel that way, come talk to one of the counselors. We'd love to pray for you because that's where we want you to be. That's where I need to be all the time. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes my heart drifts away. Sometimes I'm prone to wander. But here's the thing. We've all been given grace. Sometimes I live in the me club, where life is all about me, where the life is the me show, and everything relates to me, and I'm the main character, and people are either side characters in my story or obstacles I have to get past. People in the line, oh my gosh, Panda Express, I was just at Panda Express. I was so in the flesh, you guys, like so in the flesh. My wife and I were late to the movie, um, and we, we showed up, and we're like, okay, we don't have time to eat together. You go to Chipotle, I'll go to Panda, and I thought Panda would be way faster, and I'm in the line, and there's these guys who are in front of me, and I asked them, can I cut in front of you because I'm only getting a tiny little thing of orange chicken? And they're like, yeah, bro. So I get, I get up there, I order, I go to the cash register, and like literally for 15 minutes, they were like changing out the money in the cash register, bringing in people like... I felt like it was like rookie training day. It was crazy. I stood there for 15 minutes just waiting, and literally my foot started doing this. So I started tapping. My brow started furrowing. I was looking at the people who were, I was like, like what? I, I was nasty. Like, I got in the flesh, and I was looking at my wife, and she's over there eating her taco, and she got it like in two seconds. I was like, it's a little thing of orange chicken, and they were making like 50 other people's orders behind me. The orders were just stacking up, and here's my little thing of orange chicken just sitting there right by the cash register. I'm like, please, just, and, and I just... It was crazy because after they rung me up, the guy looks at me and he goes, oh, sir, I'm so sorry for making you wait. And it just hit me. I'm being a jerk and he noticed. 
I had no patience in that moment. And this guy noticed, and he was bummed out. I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to treat that guy that way. We need compassion for other people. Because when did salvation become an exclusive club? You know what I mean by that? Like, where is it like, hey, we're the Christians. We're the holy kids. We're the ones who've been saved. And then we look at everybody else, and we put them down. I can't believe they did that. Or celebrities. We love doing that with celebrities. I, did you see that? She was supposed to be a Christian. She said she was a Christian. Now look at what she's doing. She's trashy. She's terrible. Ugh. And we just, we love to talk about other people. We love to put down other people. We lose our patience with the people, and we need compassion. Jesus tells a story about a man who was forgiven a debt. The man was like, he goes to the king, and he's like, sir, I don't have the thousands of dollars. I need to pay you back. And the king's like, well, it looks like we're going to have to sell your whole family into slavery so they can pay me back over time and work. And the man begs the king. He's like, please, king, please, king, forgive me. And the king goes, all right, my son, you're forgiven. You don't even have to pay me back. It's forgiven. And the man, like with tears in his eyes, is like, oh, my gosh. And he, he runs away, and he's like, I can't believe the king forgave me. And then he sees a guy in the alley who owes him five bucks, and he goes, hey, you, where's my five dollars? And the guy's like, I don't have it this week. And he's like, oh, I'm calling the judge right now. We're going to take you to court. I'm going to get all your money. And the king sees this and looks at the guy, and he's like, how dare you? I forgave you so much. And you can't forgive a guy over a couple bucks? There's a verse that really speaks to me. In James 5, verse 9, it says, don't grumble about each other brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. And this puts an illustration in my mind of let's all just pretend for a moment. Put yourself in the shoes of a hardened criminal. Whatever you want, pick your fantasy crazy crime, murder, like, oh, that's weird. Please don't tell me that you're, like, it's your dream to kill people. I mean, like, put yourself in the shoes of a criminal and just assume that you've done something. You've robbed a bank. You've murdered people. You've done something terrible, okay? And you're in the courtroom, and we're, let's just imagine that we're all in the courtroom right now, and we're sitting here, and the judge is right here. And we're like, okay, so you're a murderer, you've robbed a bank, you kicked a puppy into an orphanage, and it caught on fire. Like, you are just, like, going through and telling people all the bad things they've done. And we're all sitting here, and we're like, yeah, I did that, yeah, yeah, I did that, I'm, I'm a bad man. And we're just going through. And the judge is like, all right, I sentence all of you to death by really, really bad execution, like... We're going to fill up the whole room with water and drop a toaster in it. Like, it's just going to be the worst death of all time. It's going to be terrible. And then we're going to put piranhas in the water, and you're just, it's going to be the worst death ever. The worst death you've ever experienced. What? So, so then we're like, oh, please, judge, give us a chance. And the judge says, he thinks about it, and he brings in his son. He's like, this is my son, Joshua. He brings him in. He's like, oh, I want you all to meet Joshua. And we're like, hey, Joshua. And he goes, Joshua has decided he's going to take your punishment. He's going to die for you. And everyone's just like, what? You're going to let that happen? And the judge is like, yeah, because I love you. And everyone's like, what? The judge loves What? This is crazy. And they end up, they kill Joshua. And we all sit there and we watch it happen. And we're just like, oh, my. And the judge says, you're all free to go. Your criminal record is wiped clean. You're free. Imagine then we go into the next room and there's some of us talking. And we're like, can you believe what just happened? That's crazy. I can't believe that. But then we start talking, and we're like, yeah. You know what's really crazy is that I can't believe he did that for that guy. I mean, what I did was bad, but that guy, I mean, listen to what he did. He's terrible. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and that girl over there, you don't know what she did. Oh, let me tell you. Oh, man, I mean, I, my crimes were pretty bad, but her, oh, my goodness. Like, let me tell you. And then imagine as you're saying this, you look over, and the judge is leaning in the door, and he's standing there, and he's got tears in his eyes, and he's like, my son just died for all, like, why would you even, I forgave all of you, like, stop talking about it, stop pointing out other people, like, my son just died, why would you do that, and I just, I think it's what we do, we've been forgiven, that's it, we've been forgiven, we're clean, we're free, so why talk about other people and their sin, why pray for them in front of other people and expose their sin to other people and, and under the guise of group prayer? Why gossip? Why not just focus on what's in our own heart? Because that's what needs to change. And if we all did that, we'd all be so much better, but our eyes are so often focused on other people. 
Here's the last thing that I want to leave you with. God wants us to be big in him, small in ourselves. Big in him, small in ourselves. In Mexico, there's these pots called earthenware pots. And basically, they're dust pots. It's, it's basically just nothing is holding together but dust. They're so fragile that if you pour water into them, they just disintegrate. A lot of us, that's how our hearts are. We're fragile, we're weak. But what God wants is fine china for his house. You know what I mean by that? God wants quality vessels. For those dust pots to become fine china, what they have to do is they have to go through fire. They have to go through fire. And it's through the process of fire that it hardens them and fashions them into fine china. That's how gold is made. That's how diamonds are made. It's through pressure. It's through trial. It's through fire. And for a lot of us, we resent our trials. We look at them. Maybe today you're going through something and you resent it. You're like, God, how could you put me here? Why would you put me here? But you don't understand that trial that you're going through, that person that causes you pain, that thing, that situation that causes you drama, that is God's fire that is making you into a shiny diamond for him. It's something that is making you stronger. It's something that is changing you, and it's causing you to drop to your knees and look to him because you know he's the only one who can save you. So I don't know what it is today, but we don't want friendly fire. We don't want to look at someone else who's causing us pain and gossip about them and talk about them and just pray that God would smite them. But instead, what we need is the only fire that we need is the fire of trial in our own heart that makes us stronger. So whatever it is, today is the day that I want to challenge you to embrace your trial, to give it a big old bear hug and say, God, this is what you have for me because this is where you want me. Because just like David, who saw Saul not as a trial, but as an opportunity for him to follow God better, that's the opportunity God is giving you today. And I know you have people in your life and situations in your life that are causing you pain. Give them to God completely today. That's my challenge to you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this group. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that you're going to deal with the wicked just like you're going to deal with us. We are wicked. We are sinners, but we have something that not everyone has, which is grace. We have the cure. We have the antidote. God, I pray that we'd be passionate to give it to others through our actions, through our words, through our compassion, through our forgiveness to those who don't deserve it, just like we don't deserve your forgiveness. Jesus, you're the ultimate example. You're the ultimate model. Just like you in the garden, you said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Help us, God, to be like that. Help us, Lord, to surrender our will in exchange for yours. And God, I pray we wouldn't look at people as the enemy, but realize that they're under the captivity of the enemy. Help us, God, not to attack them or be angry towards them or think bitter thoughts towards them. But God, I pray the only thing that would come forth from us is prayer and love. Help us to be strong. Help us to have courage. Help us to have grace under the pressure of trials. Lord, we need you so much. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us today, and I pray, God, we'd take these things home with us, and we'd use them. We love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great Sunday.